Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan, and thank you for joining us today. Today we are going to discuss science that is in the Bible, specifically in the book of Job and in the Psalms. So let's get straight to business. Please turn your Bibles to Job chapter 8. Let's begin in verse 8. It says, Please inquire of past generations, and consider the things searched out by their fathers. For we are only of yesterday, and know nothing, because our days on earth are as a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you, and bring forth words from their minds? Some supporting verses on this would be chapter 12 of Job, verse 12, which says similar language here, as well as back in Genesis chapter 4. While it may not be obvious at a first glance, what they're trying to tell you here is that scientifically, we have the ancestry of mankind completely wrong. Okay? Because what would scientists and evolutionists theorize as to how mankind started? They started off as Neanderthals. They started off as cavemen. They were primitive. They were unintelligent. They were feral in some ways. But that's not how the Bible describes it. We see from the very beginning in the book of Genesis that Adam and Eve are intelligent. They are able to do wonderful things if you look at the genealogy of Adam. You have even in the line of Cain who rejected God. He had descendants that were skilled in very wonderful crafts and very advanced technology. From what we have discovered in archaeology alone, we have discovered that mankind was very advanced, probably even more advanced than we are today, if, if you can wrap your head around that. It may not look exactly the same as how we build it today, but back then, they were able to build some fantastic things. Ancient technology is real, and we have found some of it. We have, for example, found mining tools and mining shafts and technology that appears to be used for metallurgy in building factories. They created air-conditioned buildings based off technology we found. They've studied the stars. They've made machines that are similar to computers. And they designed musical instruments. We have found many things like that, and there's many more than that. But you won't see that on a quick Google search, you know? You won't see that because that goes against their narrative. So this directly contradicts the theory of evolution. But yet, it completely agrees with God's word, and that's why they want it hidden so well. So there's plenty of places you can look at that. One particularly good place to research this is a group called Answers in Genesis, which you can find on YouTube, you can find on their website. They are wonderful at showing this stuff, and they have pictures. They have artifacts that you can see. So the Bible teaches us that our ancestors were not primitive, and yet that goes completely against the scientific narrative of today. So that is the first aspect of science that we see in the book of Job. Why would you refer back to your ancestors, especially in Job's day, which is considered often to be the first book of the Bible chronologically written? Because Job 
falls in the timeline around the time of Abraham. So hundreds of years before Moses came onto the scene and he wrote the first five books of the Bible, this is when Job took place. And it's widely believed that he was a real person because, especially in the New Testament, he is quoted as being a real person. This is a historical eyewitness account of a man named Job. And one of his friends, Bildad, who's the one who says this stuff in Job chapter 8, is referring to their ancestors, which was not that far back from Noah. So why would you recommend referring back to ancestors if they were primitive? So that goes completely against the narrative. Turn with me now to chapter 9. Let's begin in verse 5. It says, It is God who removes the mountains. They know not how, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun not to shine, and sets a seal upon the stars, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea. Hang on. Let's look at this very carefully. Verse 8, who alone stretches out the heavens. This is not the only place this is written in the Bible. You can look at this in Isaiah chapter 42, Jeremiah chapter 51, and Zechariah chapter 12. But they repeatedly declare through the mouth of God that he stretches out the heavens. What does that sound like scientifically? That sounds like the universe is expanding. And that is a fundamental fact in astronomy that the universe is constantly expanding. In the 20th century, most scientists, including Einstein, believed that the universe was static, that it was established, it doesn't grow, it is what it is. But others believed that it should have collapsed within itself, but it does not, and it was very unusual to them as to why it didn't. In 1929, we have a famous astronomer named Edwin Hubble, the one whom the Hubble Space Telescope was named after. He showed that distant galaxies were receding from the Earth, and the further away they are, the faster they were moving. This discovery revolutionized the field of astronomy, and Einstein even admitted that he was wrong. And today, most astronomers agree with what the Creator told us thousands of years ago. The universe is expanding. God is stretching out the heavens. Turn with me to chapter 10. Were you a cosmic accident? Is there some scientific explanation for how you are developed? Well, the Bible tells us how you're developed. Look with me in verse 8. Your hands fashioned and made me altogether, and would you destroy me? Remember now that you have made me as clay, and would you turn me into dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? You have granted me life and loving kindness and your care has preserved my spirit. Chapter 31 also expands upon this thought, but 
basically what this is telling us is that God is the one who fashions and knits us together in the womb. The Psalms also talk about that as well. We'll get to that in a minute. The science has been ignorant until very recently how embryonic development happens. How is it that embryos exist? How do a sperm and an egg come together and create a child? And how does that child know how to grow? How does the DNA know how to write the code for each of your appendages? How does it know how to do this? And so it's not until recently that science has understood it better, and yet there's still many mysteries about it that they don't know. And yet, the Bible has declared centuries ago that God made us intricately and that he designs us. And so it's no wonder why we are all so unique, because we have a creator who wove us together in our mother's womb. Let's move ahead to Job chapter 26. How does the world continue as it does? Well, if you asked people back in the ancient world, and even today, some will say that the earth sits on the back of an elephant or the back of a turtle. They would have told you that Atlas is holding up the world. But what is the reality of things that we discovered in the modern age? We understand today that the earth free floats in space, and it's affected only by gravity. Look at this understanding in chapter 26, verse 7. He stretches out the north over empty space. Wow. And hangs the earth on nothing. How in the world would they have understood that if they were primitive? How would they have understood that there is nothing but space outside of our planet and that there is nothing holding the earth together? How would they have known that unless they were more advanced than we were at one point or God reveals it to us? God does not waste his time when he writes these things down in the Bible. We may not always understand everything that he writes, because think about a hundred years ago, we would not have understood this because we had never been to space. But now that we have, and we've seen the world for what it really is from a bird's eye view, we now understand this scripture. So perhaps there are some scriptures that have not been understood yet because they haven't happened yet. This really boggles the mind, doesn't it? It boggles the mind that back in the book of Job, which happened roughly 3,000 years ago or more, that this was a proper understanding of how the world existed. God is the one who orchestrates all this. So, of course, it is going to be true, as well as completely understandable, because he's the one who designed everything. So he knows how to best explain it, and, and none of this should be a surprise to us. Let's go to chapter 38. Let's look at verse 16. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? And this is God addressing Job. So he's mentioning here the springs of the sea. Now, up until the 1970s, we probably didn't understand this. 
But here's the reality of what God is telling us. He's telling us that the oceans contain springs. Is this true? Well, this is what has happened. We know that the ocean is very deep, and almost the entire ocean floor is in total darkness, and we have not been able to explore the deep because of the sheer amount of pressure that is down there. It would have been impossible for Job to have explored the springs of the deep. It wasn't until the 1970s that we were able to do any sort of research like this in deep diving. So it was thought that oceans were fed only by rivers and rain, but God is showing us here that oceans are also fed by springs on the ocean floor. So now that we have been able to develop machines like submarines and bathyscaphs that are able to go that far down, you're, and you're talking about 6,000 PSI, pounds per square inch, of pressure, now we are able to discover that there are indeed springs on the ocean floor. This wasn't until the 1970s. So imagine up until then, this was not completely revealed to us. But yet God stated it from the very beginning, that oceans contain springs. How marvelous. Let's go to verse 24. It says, Where is the way that the light is divided, or the east wind scattered on the earth? Well, hang on. What is he saying here? He's saying that light is divided? Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. It's clear as day, right? This was discovered through Sir Isaac Newton. He studied light, and he discovered that white light is made of seven colors, right? The rainbow. And they can be parted and recombined. If you use prisms and things like that, you can divide the light into its seven colors. And then through another object, you can reconstitute those seven colors back into white light. He discovered this 400 years ago, but yet God is declaring it almost 4,000 years ago that light can be divided. How amazing is that? We're going to read a piece of verse 38, but for context, let's go back to chapter 37 real quick, and let's look at verse 10. It says, from the breath of God, ice is made, and the expanse of the waters is frozen. So we're talking about a large area of water that is frozen. Okay. Now going back to th chapter 38, let's go to verse 29. From whose womb has come the ice, and the frost of heaven who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone, and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. What this is inferring here is an ice age. Now, we have to understand it properly. Before the flood of Noah, the world was likely to be subtropical. We talked about this before, but you have the canopy theory, which I hold to, where there was a layer of water in our atmosphere that protected the world from ultraviolet rays, but it also acted like a greenhouse effect to where it was a very tropical sort of environment throughout the world. But after the flood, when 
the water from the sky fell, as well as the water from under the earth fell, from the mantle of the earth, then things changed. And so after the flood, it did cause a literal ice age. It didn't happen like scientists will tell you. It happened as a result of the flood of Noah. The Bible mentions ice often after the flood, shortly after even, because let me remind you that Job lived only a couple of hundred years after the flood of Noah, and he is of his lineage. So this was during the Ice Age period, and it's widely believed to also have been partly during the Exodus, because there's mention of ice in there too. So the Ice Age did really occur in the centuries following the flood, not 12,000 years ago because of a meteor or whatever scientists will tell you. But it says that by the breath of God, ice is given, and it's a result of the flood. Let's look at verse 19 of chapter 38. It says, Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And darkness, where is its place? So he's saying that light has a way. It has a path. In the Hebrew, that's direct, which literally means a traveled path or road. And so it was widely understood from the ancient history that life travels in a path. Prior to the 17th century, it was believed that light was transmitted instantaneously. But now we know that light is a form of energy, photons, right? And it travels at approximately 186,000 miles per second in a straight line. So indeed, yes, there is a way of light, and God has declared it from the beginning. We're going to look at one more thing in chapter 38, in verse 35. This is God speaking throughout this whole chapter, so obviously he knows what he's saying. Verse 35 says, Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? So what the Bible is saying here is that light can be sent, and then it manifests itself in speech. So there's two things that we can infer from this. The first thing is that this is explaining how lightning and thunder are related, right? This was not understood in the ancient world. We understand now that radio waves and light waves are two forms of the same thing, electromagnetic waves. So therefore, radio waves are a form of light. So today, we use radios and to send lightnings, which indeed speak when they arrive. So there's two ways that we can understand this. We can understand it as being wavelengths, but it's also a scientific explanation for how lightning and thunder are related. One follows the other because one presents itself and then it speaks through the thunder. Very interesting. Let's go back a little bit to chapter 28. There's one thing I overlooked that we need to look at. Come with me to verse 25. It says, When he imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure. This is something that Job is saying himself. How is it that he knows that the air has weight to it? 
It was once thought that the air was weightless. And yet 4,000 years ago, Job is declaring here that God established a weight for the wind. In recent years, meteorologists have calculated that the average thunderstorm holds thousands of tons of rain. To carry this, air must have mass. That is scientifically how it has to happen. Air has to have mass in order for it to hold something. That is why clouds are able to hang in the sky, because air has weight to it. And yet Job is declaring it from ancient past. Turn with me to chapter 30. We're going to read the first eight verses and see what this sounds like to you. Verse 1 says, But now those younger than I mock me, whose fathers I disdained to put with the dogs of my flock. Indeed, what good was the strength of their hands to me? Vigor had perished from them. From want and famine they are gaunt, who gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation, who pluck mallow by the bushes, and whose food is the root of the broom shrub. They are driven from the community. They shout against them as against a thief, so that they dwell in dreadful valleys, in holes of the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes they cry out. Under the nettles they are gathered together. Fools, even those without a name, they were scourged from the land. What does that sound like to you? Well, what we just read is what the Bible is describing as cavemen. Cavemen were not primitive, animalistic beings. What Job is describing here is that certain vile men, so these were vagabonds, these were outcasts, these were criminals, that were driven from society to forage among the bushes for survival. And they lived in the cleft of the valleys and in caves and all these different things. So these caves that we discover, where people used to live in them, and you find drawings and things like that, those were not good people. According to Job, those were the losers. Those were the ones that were the outcasts of society. So that's fascinating to think about, and it really reframes the way that we see archaeology today. Because especially with evolutionists telling you that these cavemen were primitive, they were not intelligent, and they did all these animalistic things, this is simply showing you that this is contrary to that narrative. So how interesting that is to think about how all these cave drawings and things like that that we've seen, they are all the vagabonds. They are not the normal people, so to speak. The last place in Job we're going to look is in chapter 40. This one is perhaps a more famous portion of scripture that most of us may have heard about. But let me go ahead and read it to you. Let's look at verse 15 through the end of the chapter. Behold now, behemoth, which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now, his strength is in his loins, and his power in the muscles of the belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. 
His limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Let his maker bring near his sword. Surely the mountains bring him food, and all the beasts of the field play there. Under the lotus plants he lies down, in the covert of the reeds and the marsh. The lotus plants cover him with shade. The willows of the brook surround him. If a river rages, he is not alarmed. He is confident, though the Jordan rushes to his mouth. Can anyone capture him when he is on watch? With barbs, can anyone pierce his nose? And then you can go into chapter 41 as well. Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook? And God goes through this huge explanation about what Leviathan is like. But we can jump ahead a little bit to verse 13. Who can strip off his outer armor? Who can come within his double mail? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth there is terror. His strong scales are his pride. Shut up as with a tight seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezes flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke comes forth as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame goes forth from his mouth. We can go on and on, but he's describing a fire-breathing dragon. And he's describing something called behemoth that eats grass like an ox, is very strong, and is not able to be conquered. The Bible here is describing dinosaurs. I personally believe that the behemoth is either an ankylosaurus or a stegosaurus, one of those things. And then the one that we see in chapter 41 could be either like a plesiosaurus or really it could be something like a T-Rex because there are cavities in the head of a T-Rex that they don't understand what they're for. But perhaps that's where it would house the compounds that would cause flame to come out of its mouth. Yeah, fire-breathing dragons are real. They existed at one point. How amazing is that? Mind-blowing, in fact. The Bible clearly is describing dinosaurs. My commentary tries to tell you that the first one is a hippopotamus, but I don't know any hippopotamus that bends his tail like a cedar and has armor. It simply just is not the case. And then the second one being a crocodile. Well, I mean, I can see some of that, right? But for it to be as frightening as it is, that is no crocodile. Today, we handle crocodiles all the time with little effort because we have dominion over them. But we're talking about giant beasts. They have to be dinosaurs. So yeah, there's dinosaurs in the Bible. Here they are, and they have names. They have Leviathan and Behemoth. There are probably more, and they were on the ark, but we just don't know what they are. Now, as to why the dinosaurs died out, for one, I don't think that's completely true. There are pictures 
And there are old photos, even within the last hundred years, of people seeing dinosaurs. There's people still talking today about dinosaurs in particular sections of South America and in West Africa, where they're seeing Triceratops, they're seeing Pteranodons, they're seeing Stegosaurus, even things as mythic as the Loch Ness Monster, which is a Plesiosaurus. Some of this is true, and I think they're still around to some degree. But my theory is that because the world was so dramatically different after the flood, it was much harder for dinosaurs to exist, not only because of people hunting them, but also the fact that oxygen today is not as concentrated as, and pure as it used to be. So I think because over time the levels of oxygen in the air have decreased, they have not only shrunk in size, but also because of their giant frames, I don't think they were able to sustain themselves. So over time, the dinosaurs started to die out. There's even a mention of a dinosaur in the Psalms, which happened almost a thousand years after this. So I still think they're around. But with that, we have concluded the book of Job when it comes to science. So now let's go to the book of Psalms and let's see a couple of places in there that talk about science. Let's go to Psalm chapter 19. Let's look at verse 6. This is talking about the sun. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. David is literally saying here that the sun moves in a circuit. Some scientists have scoffed at this verse, thinking that it taught geocentricity, which is the theory that the sun revolves around the earth. But that's not correct, and we know that today. They insisted that the sun was stationary. However, we now know that the sun is traveling through space at approximately 600,000 miles an hour. It is literally moving through space in a huge circuit just as the Bible said 3,000 years ago. Let's go back to Psalm chapter 8. Look with me at verse 8. The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. The paths of the sea. What does that mean? So it's talking about ocean currents, right? 3,000 years ago, the Bible's describing something called the paths of the seas. Now, Fast forward to the 19th century. There is a man named Matthew Mari. He is the father of oceanography. And after reading Psalm chapter 8, he went out and he researched it himself. He wanted to prove or disprove the Bible. And what did he find? He discovered that ocean currents follow specific paths throughout the seas. So using the data that Mari gathered during his studies, Marine navigators have since reduced by many days the time required to traverse the sea. Before then, it was not understood that the ocean currents had a path. They had a circuit, so to speak. And so now that we understand it better, we are able to navigate better through the sea. But before that, it was not understood this way. So here's an example of someone who used science 
to prove that the Bible is true. Now, I don't know if he was trying to disprove God, but in the process, he believed the Word of God because of his study. So how amazing that is that instead of just completely dismissing the Bible, I wish more people could do this, how they can test the Bible for what it really says and for it to be proven right every time. It's never been wrong, and it never will. Let's move to chapter 36. Let's look at verse 8. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. So what David is explaining here is the concept of pleasure. God is the author and giver of pleasure. Evolution simply cannot explain pleasure. Even with the most complex chemicals, we do not experience bliss. It is not scientifically possible for bliss to exist. However, the Bible states that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. So yes, pleasure is a gift from God, and it cannot be scientifically explained. 1 Timothy chapter 6 also talks about this a bit, but science cannot explain pleasure through evolution. So therefore, it is a gift from God. Let's go to chapter 40, and let's look at verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. So what this is, and this can be kind of loosely understood, that there are many scriptures that talk about this. Ezekiel chapter 28, Job chapter 38, which we looked at. Psalm 95 also reinforces it by saying, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. What he's describing here is the origin of music in chapter 40. The origin of music is from God. Evolution cannot explain how music was created. But the Bible says, according to James, that every good gift comes from God. And this includes joyous melodies, doesn't it? So Psalm chapter 95 is describing how singing is intended to express rejoicing in and worshiping of the Lord. So this is showing us here that music was a gift of God as well. Not just pleasure, but music is also from him. He gives us the gift of music making. And he didn't just give it to us either. It also says that he gave angels the gift of music making as well. Let's go to Psalm chapter 32. Look with me at verse 9. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Here's one aspect of a few different places in the Bible where it describes how animals do not have a conscience. We as human beings possess a higher level of ability to reason and think than animals do. We have a conscience. We have a spirit. Animals do not. Here's an example. Think about a parrot, right? You can teach a parrot 
to swear. You can teach it to speak bad words, right? You can teach it to blaspheme God. And yet it will never understand that what it's saying is evil. It will not experience any kind of conviction of wrong. Some animals steal, but they don't feel guilty about it. Some do, like dogs, but most don't. So if man evolved from animals, where did our conscience come from? Science can't explain it, but the Bible explains that man alone was created as a moral being in God's image back in Genesis. Animals don't have a conscience, but we do, and it's a gift from God as well. For now, the last place we will look is in Psalm chapter 139. There's two particular things to get out of this scripture, so let's look at this carefully. Let's look in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. So man is fearfully and wonderfully made. We are only barely beginning to understand the complexity of the DNA molecule, and there are depths to that that we are barely understanding. We still don't understand completely how the eye works. We don't completely understand how the brain works. There's a lot of intricate components of life that science simply cannot explain yet, because we are very complex. We were fearfully and wonderfully made. No human invention compares to the marvelous wonders of God's creation. He is superior to us in every way, and his creation is also superior. But did you know also in this same chapter that it seems to anticipate the discovery of DNA? Within this same scripture here, we can also read verses 15 and 16, which says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my, what, unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Talking about the unformed substance here, remember how in the book of Leviticus, when we were talking about that, how God instituted laws and commands for the people of Israel because they did not understand that there was a microbiological world. They didn't understand that there were things so small that you couldn't see them with the naked eye. So, in the same kind of understanding here, it wasn't until the 1950s that we discovered there was something called DNA, which is a genetic blueprint for life. But it seems to reference this digital code, if you will, here, where it says that even though we were unformed, you saw my substance, and in your book all my days were written, even though none of them had happened yet. So it seems to anticipate that DNA was going to be discovered, and that this was a loose understanding of what it means to be constructed by God. So very fascinating when we look at it like that. And with that, I think this is a good place to stop for today. And I don't know about you, but my mind is constantly blown when I read this stuff. 
when I really sit and think about the magnitude of what we're reading here, it is amazing. It simply just causes me to burst into joy and praise to God. And that's ultimately what it's supposed to do. All of this is to glorify Him. And let's direct our praise to that effect. But next time, we're going to look at science throughout the rest of the Old Testament. There's not nearly as much, but there are a few things to look at in the Proverbs, in Isaiah, and a couple of other places where it talks about science in a very particular way. And then we'll go into the New Testament, which, quite honestly, there isn't really that much there, but we will give it a good look. And that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.